The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello, I'm Sam Holmes and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Every week, a few of our favourite writers read their pieces from the latest issue. This week, we'll hear from Mary Wakefield about the pattern of misandry in modern media, Lloyd Evans on the British tradition of the pub theatre, and Tanya Gold on getting drunk on tiramisu. First up, Mary Wakefield. I have Netflix, and in particular, the series Made, to thank for the startling discovery of how easy it is to slide into a form of man-hating. Not a righteous feminist rage, but a sort of dopey, palliative, unthinking misandry. Made was released last month, and it's already one of the standout Netflix successes of 2021. It was announced last week that it's set to take over Queen's Gambit as the most-watched Netflix miniseries. The show is catnip for women, and after several late nights letting one episode tip into another, I can see why. It's based on the real-life memoir of a woman in America who fled an abusive boyfriend and supported herself and her small daughter by working as a cleaner. It stars Andy McDowell's daughter, Margaret Qualey, with Andy herself as the destructive, bipolar, but still hot, mama. Made is well-written and well-acted, but the secret of its success lies somewhere quite different. The distinctive thing about it is that every male character is an absolute horror. I mean every single one. There's an abusive baby father who swings between violence and remorse, the maid's own father, another wife-beater, and a slew of shifty, venal stepfathers. The bit-part men are shockers too, uncaring landlords, supercilious doctors. Even the men we never meet but merely hear disgust are abusive. The only male initially appearing decent is a chap called Nate, who saves our heroine from homelessness. But then he boots her out again because she won't sleep with him. Classic, toxic night saviour, according to social media. Made is hard to watch, but it's important, said the reviews, almost all of them. But that's plain untrue. Made is frighteningly easy to watch, which is why it's so popular, but also why it's pernicious. This is Miss Andry, shot and presented as an empowering chick flick. So settle in, make popcorn, enjoy the intoxicating feeling of sticking it to men. All men. And I'm afraid I did. After watching the show, I drank the Kool-Aid just a little, and it tasted good. I asked my husband how it felt to be part of the oppressor class. I accused him of mansplaining, and as the word came out of my mouth, it felt round and satisfying. I looked back at any odd, unasked-for lunge in my past, and saw it suddenly as part of a continuum of male sin that ends in wife-beating. I quite forgot that men ever suffer at the hands of women and that women can be as vicious as a sack of rats. My power trip lasted for 24 hours. At breakfast the following day, it occurred to me that I wasn't remotely oppressed and I also began to see why Maid had had the effect it did. Netflix is offering an analgesic, a painkiller. If you persuade women that all men are bad, then all women instantly become victims. And if you're a victim, 
all that free-floating guilt about privilege, about the planet, about parenting, suddenly disappears. I expect it's everywhere now, this almost invisible bigotry, streaming into our psyches via Netflix and Amazon Prime. It's what the French philosopher Elizabeth Badinter calls the binary thinking of belligerent neo-feminism. There was that 2019 Charlie's Angels, for instance, and a DC spin-off, Birds of Prey, two hours without a single redeeming man. And how could it be otherwise? Think of all the forces at work, tugging at the minds of scriptwriters, producers, and shareholders. There's so much dosh to be made, selling bogus solidarity to women like me sitting alone on sofas. And then there are the sensitivity readers. Someone should make a horror film called The Sensitivity Readers. Am I wrong to worry? My female friends think so. When I complain to them about MAID, they say, it's a true story and domestic abuse is a serious issue which should be better understood. That's beside the point, say I. The series is like a Cadbury selection box of male sin, no vice left up unrepresented. And can you for a nanosecond imagine anyone today making a mini-series about the iniquities of women starring a blameless man? Go on, try. We'll call it Barista, and here's the elevator pitch. An attractive young man with a drunk, coercive girlfriend runs away from her one night with his baby boy. His mum won't help him because she's drunk too. He survives working in a coffee shop, but loses custody of his child because the man-hating female judge is set against him. All the women he dates are manipulative and avaricious, but in the end he finds fulfilment in an all-male self-help group for the victims of female psychosis. What do you think? Will it sell? Oddly, most people I've spoken to needed no persuading that men were being given short shrift on screen. But the consensus was simply that this wasn't unfair. It was payback. For at least a century, women have been misrepresented on screen, they said. Male directors have made films by male writers, presenting women as men want to see them. It's time to redress this balance. But what a strange way to think. Should we burn men because men once burned witches? Should we take their votes away? Maybe their children too. And what about our teenagers quietly absorbing this skewed reality on Netflix and taking it for fact? In the 1980s, the American cartoonist Alison Bechtel proposed a test for measuring the representation of women in fiction. A book or film would only pass, she said, if it featured at least two women who talked to each other about something other than a man. Bechtel was joking at the time, but this became known as the Bechtel test and is now widely used. I think, come 2022, we're going to need another version of the Bechtel test, but this time in defence of men. If any film or series contains not one single male character who isn't either useless or evil, it'll fail. For want of a better idea, we could call it the maid test. That was Mary Wakefield. Next we have Lloyd Evans. Which is the oldest pub theatre in London? The King's Head in Islington claims that its American founder, Dan Crawford, established the trend back in 1970. But a rival venue, Pentameters, above the Horseshoe in Hampstead, maintains that its proprietor, Leonie Scott Matthews, set it up as a fringe theatre in August 1968. The dispute rumbles on. Pubs are peculiar to British culture, and their conversion into theatres owes something to the quirks of architecture. 
Most have a small room on the first floor, which is slightly inaccessible from the downstairs drinking area, and it's hard to tempt boozers to climb a narrow flight of stairs and sup their pints in a cramped space that feels a bit like an attic. But these dank little rooms are ideal for theatre. Many pub theatres are effectively polytechnics that offer drama school graduates a chance to learn the trade from the ground up. A pub is an ideal starting point because the shows tend to have a small cast, a simple set and few technical complexities. And everyone does a bit of everything. The usher who tears off the tickets may also be the artistic director. If the lighting technician gets hit by a bus en route to the dress rehearsal, there'll be enough collective wisdom in the building to get a substitute trained before the opening night. What pub theatres encourage, in other words, is a spirit of experimentation. And this can pay handsome dividends when a show transfers to the West End. The play that goes wrong began life at the 60-seat Old Red Lion in Islington in 2012. Michael Kingsbury's production of Maggie and Ted, a historical comedy about the Conservative Party leadership, migrated from the White Bear in Kennington to the Garrick last June. Many of our greatest lovies began their careers in pub theatres. The Finborough Theatre, a pub venue in Earl's Court, gave work to Catty Burke, Jane Horrocks and Rory Bremner during the 1980s. And its artistic director, Neil McPherson, claims it has discovered some of the UK's most exciting new playwrights, including Laura Wade, James Graham, Mike Bartlett and Jack Thorne. The walls of the King's Head in Islington are lined with photographs of stars who once trod its narrow stage, Joanna Lumley, Hugh Grant, Kenneth Branagh and Clive Owen. And now some upmarket theatres like Soho and Hampstead have converted their rehearsal rooms into small black box spaces because they want to replicate the special pub theatre vibe. Low ceilings and cramped seating generate a particular energy and excitement. A venue with just 50 seats will feel almost full with only 25 people in attendance. If 40 punters turn up, the place appears to be rammed and the audience becomes exhilarated even before the show begins. It's not just a question of the venue's capacity. The range of genres at a pub theatre is far broader than the fare offered elsewhere. The Rosemary Branch in South Islington is open to virtually everything. We host all kinds of community experiences, says the website. Theatre, comedy, live music, improv, family shows, puppetry, drag, cabaret, podcasts and burlesque. It's impossible to imagine the old Vic welcoming such a ragbag of populist entertainment through its doors, and this in itself is rather sad, because in the 19th century, the old Vic was a musical that gladly provided low-prowl frivolity for the mass market. Too many theatres in London have become anxious about their status as serious-minded purveyors of must-see claptrap, which is aimed at metropolitan theatre-goers, the kind of punters who fall asleep during the show so that they're full of beans when discussing how marvellous it was at the after-party. A key specialism of pub venues is the rediscovery of forgotten texts. In 2006, the Fimborough dusted off a neglected curiosity, The Rat Trap, written by Noel Coward at the age of 19. It was his first play. Five years later, the same venue staged a dazzling revival of Accolade, a minor masterpiece about homosexuality and blackmail by Emlyn Williams. And the Fimbera's production of J.B. Priestley's Cornelius became a sellout hit at an off-Broadway venue in New York. This crucial work of salvage and renewal ought to be done by the National Theatre, whose name implies a duty to preserve the UK's collective memory through its dramatic heritage. But the National's current managers have lost their judgment and succumbed to a neurosis about race, gender and the rights of anyone claiming to be a marginalised citizen. Here's what the National has offered us since August. 
Paradise was an impenetrable version of Socrates' Philoctetes, written by the non-binary poet Kay Tempest, who once called herself Kate Tempest. There was The Normal Heart by Larry Kramer, which chronicled the lives of downtrodden gay men in New York in the early 1980s. And there was Rockets and Blue Lights, set in the 18th century, which revealed the connections between the painter J.M.W. Turner and the slave trade. These choices are hardly attuned to the priorities of mainstream audiences. During lockdown, some pub theatres began clamouring for injections of cash from the government. In the end, very little financial help was given, but they seem to have weathered the storm. In fact, a brand new pub venue in Camberwell, the Golden Goose, opened as a theatre last summer. It's perhaps a blessing that the pleas for cash went unheeded. Free money comes at a price, compliance, and that slows everything down. Pub theatres, like most venues, produce some work in-house, but most of their programme is created by external companies who hire the space for a split of the box office. Now, the budget at pub theatres is always tight, so the structure has to be lean and fleet of foot. Pub theatres can't afford teams of diversity champions, climate change gurus, wheelchair czars and other ornamental hangers-on. And because they're free of government grants, they don't need to submit each new work to a panel of nitpickers who want to know how the show will affect social mobility, rough sleeping and literacy rates in the area. Autonomy and agility are crucial to their success and they're highly responsive to new bids from producers. The Hope Theatre, above the Hope and Anchor pub in Islington, promises to answer impresarios within three weeks. And getting in touch with the people in charge is never hard. It's not uncommon for artistic directors to post their personal email addresses on the website. And if you want to have a chat in person, you can arrive shortly before curtain up on a Saturday night and you'll find the boss perched on a bar stool awaiting the offer of a free pint. That's not how Rupert Gould runs things at the Almeida. Maybe he should give it a try. That was Lloyd Evans. And finally, Tanya Gold. You can get drunk on tiramisu. I have done it. It takes two portions at least. You drink, I mean eat, the masala wine and the rum, and then must be escorted, tenderly, to the bus stop. I don't usually drink alcohol. If I did, I would smash up restaurants. But I do eat tiramisu. You have to eat a lot of tiramisu to be hospitalised. That is my reasoning. Tiramisu means lift me up. Like Caesar salad in the world, it has a detailed creation myth with its own pretenders, factions, expert witnesses and conspiracy theories. There is a website, the Tiramisu Academy, devoted to the mystery of its origin. Since 2011, we have been transmitting the culture of tiramisu. The Academy suggests tiramisu was invented to inspire men meeting prostitutes in 19th century Treviso, an early Viagra for clients who took a dose when leaving the brothel so they could then copulate with their wives. This sounds plausible, an Italian equivalent of my wife needs me to eat the last quality street toffee penny for sex. The Academy's expert witness, the writer Giovanni Comiso, who remembered his grandmother's personalised tiramisu, died in 1969. The alternative narrative is that it was invented in Addo Campiel's restaurant Alle Beccari in Treviso in 1969, the year Comiso died, by Campiel, his wife Alba and the chef Roberto Linguanotto, who is the Perkin Warbeck figure in this drama. In this telling, it was either a lucky mistake, Linguanotto dropped mascarpone cheese into the mixture for vanilla ice cream in error, or a palliative for aching nipples and an aching heart. 
Sugar, cheese and biscuits were Alba's chosen food to console her for the exhaustion she felt while breastfeeding her son Carlo. With Linguinotto, she combined them. The hard alcohol came later. Campiel died last month with his title, The Father of Tiramisu, intact. This feels depressingly patriarchal. Some things are worth a battle. The alchemy in tiramisu is just that. There are three distinct flavours, coffee, sugar, hard alcohol, and three textures, cream, crumble, wet. When done properly, it is the greatest pudding there is. You can't get high on a profiterole, though I've tried, and you can only get low on treacle sponge. When done badly, it is repulsive. Ladyfingers and cheap booze, something found at the bottom of the sink. It must be firm, not soggy. The cheese must be light, not heavy. The best I had was in Venice at Moreau Frari. The worst was in Camden Town, in a restaurant that I hope has burnt down. There are variations, but I am a purist, though we must have hard alcohol. Can I say I really hate panettone, and that Tia Maria does not belong anywhere outside of a slur, and that vodka should only ever be drunk neat and not inside food? You may say it's just a trifle. Bah! That was Tanya Gold. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed it, please rate and review this podcast on our Best of the Spectator channel and pick up this week's issue to read more great articles like these three. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back with another Spectator Out Loud next week.